ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us, would guide us, convict us, teach us, encourage us, and what it means, God, to uh, be a truly a devoted follower of yours, God. So I ask you to just be over this time in Christ's name. Amen. If you can clock, start that timer. So that would be great. It's, it's counting down from 30, 33. Oh, you're right. That is good. I'm sorry. I just, I just ask because we have a clock up there for my sake that goes, and I've got a massive passage to, to do today, and I want to be able to know if I needed to say, okay, sorry, we're done. Um, <laughs> well, this morning, what we're doing is we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. As you know, we've had two weeks we've been in the book of Acts, and really what has purposely stood out in this already just in the two sermons that we've looked at uh, so far in Luke's account has really been this vital role that the Holy Spirit has played not, al- not only in, in all throughout the Old Testament and ancient prophecy and prophesying about Jesus and who he was and what he was going to do, but really the whole, it's been really emphasizing the role how the Holy Spirit played really in all of Jesus's ministry in his life, in his death and his resurrection. And this morning, we're going to continue to see an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. What we're going to be specifically looking at this morning is the vital role that the Holy Spirit played in establishing the early church. And really, we're going to look at the important implications that this has for us today. And specifically, it's how do we be people? How do we be a church that, that we are doing what we were intended to do, intentionally fulfilling our mission to make disciples? How do we do that? Not how do we figure that out, but how did the Holy Spirit infuse in people's life? How did the Holy Spirit work to set that up work? In other words, what we're going to look at today is what a church looks like that is filled with people who are being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to look at today because that's what we see in the very first church. Remember, as we've already seen, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we as believers are not only able to fulfill living out our faith, not only are we able to even do anything for God or even understand anything about God, but really it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can even be effective as witnesses at all. It's all by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you remember where we're at in our story now, remember a few days earlier, while Jesus was still with his disciples, he told them, okay, go back to Jerusalem and wait, okay? For in just a few days, something, he didn't say it this way, but really he said, in a few days, something pretty amazing is going to happen, okay? Something ridiculous that you're not going to believe is going to happen. There's going to, you're going to be baptized, he tells them this, that you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit and that you're going to receive power to be my witnesses. Now, I'm sure they had no idea what this entailed. They just knew, okay, let's go. So they went. So here we are. That's where we are today, a few days later, okay? And things are about to get real. I mean, really real for the disciples. So let's pick up the story where we left off. Now we're in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. By the way, we're looking at the entire chapter of chapter 2 today. It's 47 verses. That's why we move, move, move. Okay, number, uh, verse 1. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here we are. We're on the day of Pentecost, which really this was a, this was a Jewish feast or a, a day of celebration of the early wheat harvest that went way back into the Old Testament. And now the disciples are all together. They're, pro, they're most likely somewhere near, whether they're in a house or in this, or somewhere near the outer courts of the temple, because we'll see that late, a little bit later. When all of a sudden... We don't know what they're doing. They're just all together. This sound like a mighty rushing wind that fills. Have you ever heard just an incredible, mighty rushing wind before? I looked on the internet because I wanted to play. This is mighty rushing. I've never lived in Tornadoville or anything like that, but they say it's like, I've heard things like it's like a freight train coming through your room or something like that. So this is what was happening. This mighty rushing wind, all of a sudden they start to hear it. And then next appears really what they are is these representation of divine presence in the form of these, fi- these tongues of fire. Ah, crazy. These tongues of fire on each person. And it says that immediately each man there was filled with the Holy Spirit, which really what that means is, it really means that there's this a new era has arrived. Okay, this new era has arrived in which the Holy Spirit is now going to empower and indwell mankind. So then we see they begin speaking in different languages. Now, they're not speaking in tongues. That's a whole different thing. The lang- that's, a, that's a spiritual language that requires interpretation, different things like that. This is, they're, they're speaking in these different languages. So put the scene in your head. The sound of a mighty rushing wind. All of a sudden, tongues of fire, men filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're all of a sudden they're speaking in all these different languages. What a wild scene this must have been. And you would think that this would attract some attention, right? You would think that the sound and all of a sudden these language, and it does. Look at the next verses. Look at verse 5. Look what it says. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, about uh, devout men from every, every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of, uh, each, each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cap- Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Pergia, Fap- all those places, <laughs> Egypt, and the other parts of Libya belong the Cyrene and visitors from basically from everywhere. They're hearing these voice. They're hearing their language. Both Jews and proselytes, Christians, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. So what an interesting thing. We see that these, basically these pilgrims from all over the land, all over the earth in that time, the known world in that time, had come there to celebrate Pentecost. This is a time when the city would just swell and just be thousands of people would be there. 
And they spoke all these different languages. And they come running because they're hearing something that is utterly astonishing to them. And, it, and really what he's saying here is that they were totally perplexed. What is going on? These Galileans. Really what he's saying is, presumably, these Galileans, these presumably uneducated men are speaking in our various local languages. How can this be? And they're telling of the mighty works of God. Likely, likely they were telling what God had done through Jesus. So they're going, what is going on? Now, even though this was a unique event, this was a very unique event, what was happening here, we're going to see that throughout the book of Acts, how ordinary believers, as they are prompted and empowered by the Holy Spirit, unashamedly and unabashedly proclaim the greatness of God. We see that they take advantage, they're totally taking advantage of opportunities that are given to tell people about the real reason for their hope and the real reason for their joy. So this is, though, this is just an inauguration of that. But notice there's this, there's this mixed reaction from the crowd, okay? There's this mixed reaction as to what they're hearing. Some are amazed and they're at a loss for what it means, while others, they make an effort to explain what is happening by mocking. And they're saying that basically that they're drunk. These guys have got to be drunk. They've, they've had cheap wine. They've been, they've been drinking Boone's Farm. They're just like, you know, they're, they're that's for the older crowd. Um, they're, they're of high school. Um, that's from back in the old, that, that's, they're just, they're crazy. This, this is nuts. They just got this cheap, unfermented wine. They're just drunk. Well, look what, hap- look, look, well, look what happens. Look what happens um, in, the, in just a few minutes. But first of all, sorry, that. here's the thing. We need to know that the kind of reaction that the disciples got, the disciples, this weird, varied reaction that they got, we are going to get the same kinds of reactions and responses as well. We are. Some may be perplexed or even mock us for giving the real reason for our joy and for our hope. Yet I th- here's the important thing we need to remember, because this is what takes away our fear sometimes. We need to remember that when we speak with the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, knowing that he's speaking through us, not that every word's going to be perfect, but when we sense the Holy Spirit is saying, okay, talk. Okay, share the reason behind, real reason behind your hope. We got to know that our words are not in vain. Most of the time, typically, at least in my, in my experience, I will leave a situation telling someone about the hope I'm telling them. And really, in my mind, I'm saying, listen, I'm telling you the most amazing message in the world. And they're going, hmm, yeah. Or, really? I don't, I don't get that. I was talking to someone not too long ago. I mentioned something about a relationship with God, and we were talking about that, and, and he goes, relationship with God, what does that even, what does that even mean? And it, it was just a just weird thing. It was kind of, he wasn't mocking me at all. He was just like, I don't get that. I don't even get what you're talking about. So we got to know there's going to, but I know I can have hope in the fact that my conversation with this man was not in vain. I was able to share my hope that is because I have a relationship with God. And it's easy to say, oh, they didn't respond very well. All right, uh, I'll figure out how to better say it next time. No. We can know that the Spirit of God is going to use whatever we say in His way that is best, okay? So let's look what happens then. Look at, look at verse 14. It says, but Peter 
standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So Peter stands up and likely inspired by the Holy Spirit. This wasn't the old Peter. The old Peter would have said, shut up. You know, he would have, what do you, you know, he would have just gone off on his, you know, emotional side. But Peter stood up most likely now because of the Holy Spirit that now resides in him. Remember, he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He addresses the crowd and he gives them an explanation of what they are witnessing. And he begins by giving them a rebuttal to this accusation of drunkenness. First of all, he says, hey guys, it's only 9 a.m. All right. We're not, we're not drunk. This whole group of people, all this crowd, all of us, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. And then, interesting, what Peter goes on to do is give a scriptural explanation for what has occurred. Okay, this whole next big section, we're going to see Peter really dive back into scripture of the Old Testament to, to prove to them what is happening. Look at verse 16. He says this, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men will see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the days of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Wow, crazy language in there. He's quoting a prophet, the prophet Joel. And what he's doing here is he's giving them a scriptural basis for the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit and what he is actually ushering in as he comes. He's saying, it's a new era, people. All that stuff was, that was talked about in the Old Testament, it's a new era, an era when the Holy Spirit's now going to dwell with mankind. And the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to mankind the truth of who he is and their need for him. And really, this kind of apocalyptic language that we're hearing here is, is what he's saying is it's the, that it's salvation, it's imperative. It's imperative because the reality is that the judgment is coming. Look, at, already the first sermon ever preached, ever preached, was about judgment of sin. And there's a way out. There is a way out. Basically, Peter's saying the clock is ticking, and the only way to be saved is to call on the name of Jesus. Now, what Peter does, even goes back to Scripture some more, and he goes on to explain even the deeper meaning of his explanation. So this is going to be no small little thing Peter's saying, hey, it's, the, it's God, it's the Holy Spirit, it's Jesus, just deal with it. No, he goes back to, remember he's saying, all these Jews... It's basically speaking to Jews that have been scattered throughout the world that have left Jerusalem and now are back. So they know the stories. They know the Old Testament. They know the prophecies. 
So by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter dives back in to the scriptures to help, to help them with, it, with this. Look at, verse, look at verse 22. It says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is my, at my right hand and I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter begins by telling them that despite the mighty works that God accomplished through Jesus, the Jewish authorities handed him over to the Romans to be executed, even though all that he did, yet because of God's authority over death, death could not hold you. Death, death could not hold him. That's how powerful God is. And so Peter goes on to quote even King David, who went back in that day, King David prophesied concerning the Messiah whom God would raise from the dead. So he's going back. Remember, David even said this. So he's helping them to understand prophecy that they probably never even understood. Peter says that David received a promise from God that one of his descendants would reign as the Messiah and that he would be raised from the dead and he would reign with God at God's right hand. By the way, this whole right hand of God thing, what that really means is it's a, a position of supremacy over the entire universe. So when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, he was given supremacy over everything, over the universe. And this is what's being revealed by the Holy Spirit. See the power of the Holy Spirit working already in the early church? Right through Peter, telling him, interpreting old, all this Old Testament scripture. See, the Jews expected the Messiah to deliver Israel by overthrowing Roman rule and establishing an earthly kingdom. That's what they were thinking then. Okay, the Messiah's going to come. Awesome. Get the Romans out of there. Earthly kingdom. Yes, that's what they were assuming was going to happen. Yet what Peter is telling them, the message that he's conveying is that Jesus is actually the Messiah that they have been waiting for all along. And it's he who will ultimately rule the universe and deliver not just Israel, but all of mankind. He's going to deliver everybody. But he's going to deliver them not from national oppression, not from an oppressive, from an oppressive government, but from their sin. From the very thing that separates them from a God who loves them so much. Can you imagine the wheels turning in these Jewish people that have been through learning and all that stuff all these decades, and they're getting this interpretation now? They must be thinking, oh, my goodness. So this brings us, did I, did I get you, did, I, did we fill out the first number one thing on, did we ever get to the first one? 
Okay, good. I was going to say, I didn't even say here's number one. You're good, though. You're good. So this brings us to the second element of the church that is filled with people who are being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. What is, it points, the, this, the, what the church does, it's like this, it points people to Jesus, who Jesus is, and what he has done as seen through the scriptures. This is very important, as seen through the scriptures. Because the truth is that what God has done through Jesus is to be central to our message. That's the central message that we have. And we need to be careful to point people to the truths about this that are found in Scripture. Not, not just simply our own perceptions or not the things that we thought that we have learned in the past or that people, what they have told us. Not just our ideas about Jesus. People, and this is what I've been convicted on so much lately, when we talk to people about Jesus, we need to point them to the Scriptures. We need to use the Scriptures to defend who Jesus is. So often, isn't it true that we go to, well, well, here's what I have learned. Here's what I feel. And a lot of that can be great. That can be scripturally based and everything. But the reality is there's power in God's word. It's breathed out. And when we quote scripture or when we point people to the scripture, I just read a book recently that was talking about how to um, help uh, parents that are starting to be in, interested in spiritual things. I thought about you, Ginny, when I, when I read this, that their parents are getting in, interested in spiritual things. And they said, why don't you to use this? And this church, what, what there was giving, there was giving the people, what's the Bible called? The Storytime Bible. It's a children's Bible. And the, what, it, what it says on it, the Storytime Children's Bible, and it says something about how um, basically the idea that Jesus appears throughout the entire Bible. It, he's, he's everywhere. So read through this read, this, read this to your kids, they said. Give this to your, read this to your kids at night. Read these stories about the Bible to your kids at night and, and, they, and how Jesus is woven throughout the whole thing. This is why when we talk about Jesus, we need to be pointing people to the scriptures and not just our opinions and not just our thoughts and ideas of who Jesus is. Because as, as strong as those might be, there's nothing more strong than the, the power of God's word in helping people understand who Jesus is. Now, Notice that Peter ends this speech what I, with what I'm sure was a very, very shocking statement, okay? He, 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 starts, he says something. He implicates them in Jesus' death. He says that they are ultimately guilty of the death of the Messiah. Oh, man, could you imagine what they're, add that onto what everything he's just said? I love the lyrics from that song, How Deep the, you all know, How Deep the Father's Love for Us says, behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It's a sobering truth that it's ultimately our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. And Peter wants to make sure they understand that. We're all guilty, he's saying. We're all guilty. So you can imagine these guys are now going, 
<laughs> okay, oh, uh, okay, now we're getting all that you've told us about what the scriptures really mean. It's Jesus. Oh my gosh, what do we do? Notice how people, people react to them being implicated. Look at, verse, look at verse 37. Peter says, no, no, the verse says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will see the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued exhorting them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amazing. So when they hear that all that Peter has to say here, including implicating them in Jesus' death, it says, that, it says that they were cut to the heart. It's like, it's like a knife to the heart that, oh my gosh, I'm wrong. They were convicted. They were convicted of their sin and of their guilt, and they implore the disciples, what do we do? See, that's what, the, that's what the Holy Spirit of God does with his word. He convicts. That's one of his jobs is to convict. It's not ours. It's not yours and mine's job to make sure that people see their sin. We need to present the truth about sin, though, that we are all guilty, and then let the Holy Spirit do the knifing or, I'm sorry, or do, do the work that he does. Okay. So I love that. So they want to know what in the world, what do we do? And Peter then tells them, really, what, here's the appropriate response. If someone wants to know what it means to have a right relationship with God, he tells them, this is, the, this is what you do to respond to the gospel. First, number three on your notes, repent. Repent means this, a complete change of heart. It's a spiritual about face. That's what repenting is. And it says, then they are to immediately carry out this outward symbol, out, this outward or visible sign of repentance that's been going on inside of them that's being, by being baptized. See how important baptism is? Baptism, remember, we talk about it. It doesn't save you, but it's an outward symbol that we are told to do, to show, okay, I'm doing that on the, out, on the inside, but on the outside, I want to show that. That's why important baptism is. That's why I think it's a great idea. If people come to know Christ, women think we should, we should tell them, let's get you baptized. Let's, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's make that, let's do this symbolic thing. Because not only is it powerful to do that, it's in the Bible. It's a good, it's a good and right thing to do. Okay? Um, and so the result of the, all this is that they, the, that they received the Holy Spirit. And we see here this, this astonishing thing that 3,000 people respond to the gospel right then and there. 3,000 people, Wow! That's the result of someone speaking the truth of God's word, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you know what? We tend to think that the, oh man, that was probably the most polished sermon because it says he went on and said more. I don't know. Did he go on for an hour? Did he go on for just two more minutes? I don't know. But I have a feeling though, his words weren't like this perfect and all this. We always think that, oh my gosh, I could never share the gospel. No. The Holy Spirit uses our broken, scared selves. All the time. Because if we got it right, we would think, yeah, this is really about how I, I got this down. 
No. What better place to be when it comes to sharing the truth of the gospel than being petrified and having to rely on Jesus? And if you don't show up, Spirit, I'm, this isn't going to happen. That's a great place to be. No place I'd rather be. That's a good, good place to be. All right. This eventually makes, you know, and here's the thing. This event, really what's going on right here, it really makes perfect sense. We think, wow, 3,000 people. Jesus never got 3,000 people to respond. He fed lots of people, but he never got that many people to respond. What is going on here? Well, remember back when Jesus was with them, back in, in John chapter 14, he said this, truly, truly, I say to you that whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. You see, what this means is that Jesus went to the Father and sent his Holy Spirit so that we could continue his ministry with even greater results. Isn't that a cool promise? Isn't that good to know? He left so that we could do even greater things through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's encouraging. That is really encouraging to me. Great result. So, first, first church immediately explodes 3,000 people. Wouldn't that be an amazing church growth thing? 3,000 people, bam, right off the bat. 3,000 new believers. Can you imagine what that must have been like? 3,000. So now what? Now what are they supposed to do? Where's the, where's the plan? We didn't plan for this. We didn't, staff, we didn't staff our churches. We didn't get the surveys ready. We didn't get all the things that we need to do to the discipleship programs. We, what, what, what do we do? What is this supposed to look like? So what did the first church look like? What were the, what were the things that characterized this community of new believers from the very inception? Well, this is what this last section in Acts chapter 2 is actually about. Really what you're going to see here is the ideal picture of what a community of people who are rejoicing in the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit looks like. This is what it looks like. Here we go. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And awe came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by by day, those who were being saved. So, we see that the first church devoted themselves to very certain specific practices, right off the bat. Practices that I really believe that we can see them as a template for a church that is filled with people who are being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Number four in your notes. First, it's important to understand what this word devoted literally means. It means to persist in adherence to, to be intently engaged in, or to attend to constantly. <laughs> you get the, 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 the push of the, what this word means? What it means to persist and to be intent and do that constantly. 
These new converts were immediately overcome by an intense desire and need to devote themselves to certain practices. They just, this had to be done. Number five on your notes there. We see they devoted them to the apostles' teaching. They were hungry learners. They saw the importance of being instructed about doctrine and key principles and beliefs. They knew that they needed this, okay? Number six, they devoted, on your notes, number six, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, we don't even know this word. This word fellowship here is koinonia, which means, here's the more definition kind of, it denotes this sharing com- commonality and a participation in sharing and contributing mutual support through the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Koinonia denotes shared commonality and a participation in sharing and contributing mutual support through the power of the Holy Spirit. Number seven on your notes. They also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This was most, most probably most was a common meal that they all shared together, which was referred to as the Lord's Supper, a love feast, or communion. It could be communion. Um, this is not how communion started, by the way. Juice, cup of juice and crackers. It was celebrated within the context of a meal somehow, okay? Finally, we see that they devoted themselves to prayer. They sought God's direction together. It was important that they were together We talked about this, remember last time we talked about how important it is to be coming together seeking God's will. And some of these prayers were probably fixed prayers that they'd been praying already in the synagogue, but others probably were prayers that were um, a bit spontaneous as well. Now, notice the impact. Notice the impact these practices had on everyone. Verse 43 tells us there was a sense of awe. Literally, everybody was blown away by what God was doing amongst them. They just could not believe it. And add to that, there was this deep sense of unity, so much so that they viewed all the possessions, everything they had, they viewed their possessions as a means of meeting one another's needs. Could you imagine that mindset? Everything I've got, reminding myself that everything I've got, I look at that as a way of how can I meet other people's needs. Do we think that way? I wonder how often that I think that way. Do I think everything that I own, am I viewing it as possibly a potential way to meet other people's needs by either letting them have it, borrow it, sell it, whatever? That's what was happening. That's the minds. I'm not saying we're doing that. We're all going to, let's start, let's set up this communistic thing. I'm not saying that. This was just a mindset that was going because what was God was doing uh, in there, okay? And they continued attending services in the temple. But could you imagine now what those services looked like? I don't know if you've ever, many of you grew up in a church at all where kind of the same, they would say the same things, say the same prayers maybe, a lot of the same stuff over and over again. Well, they were doing some of that, but can you imagine the new perspective now? I remember the first time I went to a Catholic church, I was probably in my mid-30s. And I had just, I was in youth ministry and I drove by a church that was near a friend's church. And I thought, I'm going to go in there. No, it says the service is going. I don't, know what a, I don't know what a Catholic service is like. I got to tell you, I thought it was the most beautiful service I had ever been to. I was absolutely blown away at the reverence of it and the, just the things they were saying. And I was like, wow. But then my friend told me they do that every same thing every week. 
I went, oh. Not to say that all Catholic church, they said that church, well, there, you're going to hear the same thing, the same prayers, the same talk every week. I went, oh, okay, I can see how that could get old. But initially, I thought, wow. Can you, that's what was happening here. They were going to the synagogue now, and they were hearing things and saying things that now they're a whole other perspective. Oh, my gosh. It was blowing their minds. And they, they were, yet also it says they were together in one another's homes. They came into one another's homes to share a meal. These new believers, this new church, came to understand how bu- building community is very much tied to the, the vulnerability and the security that comes with being in someone else's home. There's something powerful about being in someone's home. And so they were eating together, regularly coming together in people's homes to share a meal, which gives us uh, the third element, number nine on your notes, of a church that is filled with people who are being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's, this con- it's the devotion to community. A devotion to community. Here's a crucial factor for the early church. I really want you to hear this. Fill in that blank and then listen. I want you to hear this. For the early church, church was ultimately seen as an everyday experience. I'm thinking, what? I don't have time for that. No, I'm thinking a mindset. Not just... For the early church, the church, church was not something about you, okay, this scheduled event that I go to. That's not what it was about. It was about doing everyday life with one another. There was such this integral, intricate weaving together of life and however it might work out because they knew they needed to be in each other's lives. Because remember when they were, they were just blown away with God, what God was doing. And, but he was blown, they were blown away because of what they were doing in their midst of being together, hearing the sermons, talking about the sermons, sharing their stuff, having a meal together. It was all part of it. It was all mixed in. There wasn't just one element. So these last verse tells us, the very last verse of chapter 2 tells us that the result of all this was that the joy of the Lord spilled into having favor with everybody. What this means is their devotion to God and to each other extended to those outside of the community of faith. They weren't just loving and caring for one another. That was primary. That was key. But they were meeting the needs and they were caring for and they're showing their love to to others too. But really what he's saying here is the love they had for one another, people were just blown away by it. And in turn, it led to many more people coming to Christ. John Stott writes this. Luke's summaries presents an ideal for the Christian community, which it must always strive for, consistently return to, and discover anew, if it is to have the unity of the spirit and purpose essential for an effective witness. I want to end this morning with a kind of a a rather long quote from one of the commentaries that I read uh, this, this past week that I just thought, this guy really sums up this section really well, this last part particularly. Uh, here's what he says. With Acts 2, 42 to 47, ending as it does, Luke wants to leave us no doubt that there is an important connection between community life and the favor of the community experienced with outsiders. This kind of engagement has a positive effect on mission. 
Everything about the Gospels and Acts tells us that God's people are to take the initiative to show community and serve those around them. Much in Western culture drives us to, to an individualism that undercuts this development of community. We are taught to have things our way. And the being able to have our individual needs catered to is how to measure the success of an organization. In our culture, our individual needs and rights come before any needs of the group. The biblical picture is not of what someone receives from the church although one does receive a great deal, but of what one gives and how one contributes to it. The portrait of the early church in Acts shows that community and the welfare of the group were a priority. This attitude reflects spiritual maturity that allowed the church to grow. In the case of the early, earliest community, the believers' preaching was matched by their community, making powerful testimony for their mission. When the early church said that God cared, the care they gave their own demonstrated this. That's a picture of the early church. That's how it started. Let me ask you a question. Do you, do I do we desire to be people, to be, to be a church that is being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit? Do you want that for your life? I know I'd crave that for my life. To be people in a church that's on mission to make disciples that can in turn make disciples. To be people who talk about and proclaim, like the early church did, the greatness of God in whatever language you speak. To be people who point others to Jesus and what he has done and who he is through the scriptures. To be people that are devoted to community. I hope you desire to be this kind of person and I hope that you desire to be this kind of church. Really, I would ask that we would be willing to do whatever it takes to make that happen. And obviously this has probably a lot to do with what we're going to talk about tonight at our town hall, so I would encourage you not to miss, because we really want to help all of us understand what this is all about and answer questions and really help all of us be hearing from the Spirit of God. That's what we want. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for just your incredible love for us and how you have... <laughs> Some, in some ways made things pretty obvious to us what it looks like to be followers of yours, to be your people, to be a church. God, I pray, God, that you would help us with that. Help us to know what you want, God. Help us to, to be willing to take the chance in our own life and in our church life and in many other ways that would cause us to have to totally be dependent on you. Because we want to be who you want us to be. We want to be able to be people that make disciples, that, make, that, can, that can in turn make disciples, which seems so scary. But God, that's what you've called us to do and called us to be. So you wouldn't leave us in the dark. You wouldn't leave us without the help to do that. You've given up your spirit and you've given us each other. We thank you for that, God. And we ask, God, that you would lead us and guide us in all truth in this. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to go into a time of uh, communion right now, and 